same standing as you're able. As Audrey told the children about David uh, dancing before the ark, we pick up that story. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It had the makings of one of the greatest love stories of history. He had risked his life for her. David, in order to win Michael when he fell in love with her, had gone and killed Philistines. Saul had used Michael as bait and said to David, if you'll kill me a hundred Philistines and bring me evidence, you can marry my daughter. And he gave David a deadline. And David not only met the deadline, but brought back twice as many dead. Two hundred Philistines risked himself on her account. After they were married and Saul's jealousy of David grew, Saul one night decided he would come and capture David. Michael got wind of it and she risked her own life to protect her husband. She told him to leave in the middle of the night. And she made a dummy in a bed, put hair on it, and told the people looking for David that he was ill in bed. And they came and saw that and left. And that gave David time to escape. She risked her life. And then later, after Saul, in growing jealousy, had taken Michael away from David as his wife and given her to another man... Saul finally died, and the two tribes of southern uh, Judah, Jerusalem area, asked David to be king. Then the other ten tribes came to him and said, we want you to be our king. But David put a deal breaker on the table. He said, I'm not going to be your king unless you bring me back my wife, Michael, who was taken from me. He risked his life for her. She risked her life for him. He risked his very kingdom. For her, it has all the bravery and the loyalty that would satisfy the fans of Braveheart. It has enough romance and sacrifice to satisfy the fans of the movie Titanic. A greatest story perhaps ever told, except it didn't end that way. As we read today, this great story came unraveled very quickly. This is what I'd like to do. Today and and because I, I think the Bible intends us to do that, we'll we'll do a bit of a post mortem. Let's take a part and see the story and see if we can find out what happened to David and Michael and their marriage. If you'd like to follow along, there is an outline in the bulletin in the form of an insert. It's entitled Heart Failure. And what I want to discuss with you today is this: that David and Michael's marriage was hurt by five failures of the heart. At least five things that I can pick out where they they struggled in their relationship and it eventually cost them. I'd like to look at all five of these with you and suggest a corrective action that you might take in your own relationship to avoid this. The first failure really wasn't theirs. It really was thrust upon them. But the first failure we see in their marriage is this, a failure to have family support. 
The family of, of Michael really didn't support the marriage. Saul dangled Michael as bait in front of David, trying to get him killed on a suicide raid uh, to, to uh, kill a hundred Philistines. He was hoping David would die and he'd be rid of him. Michael's love and David's love uh, was just uh, something he used. He didn't really support their, their marriage. And my word here... Uh, for those of you who are parents and you have children that are married, is that your job is to support their marriage and you have a daughter-in-law and you may or may not like her. Or you have a son-in-law and you may or may not like him, but they are your daughter-in-law. They are your son-in-law and your job is to support their marriage. To keep appropriate distance from their marriage when uh, required. I, I won't forget Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life, said that when he and his wife Kay got married... Kay's uh, father called her into a room and said, I want you to know that no matter what happens, you cannot come home. He was being clear that their marriage was their marriage. That that was the family that she was to be a part of now and they were to work through that. He did that right as, as a parent. So that's the first word. But the second word is to those of you who might be contemplating marriage someday, you need to know this. Pay attention to whether or not the parents support the marriage. Dr. Neil Clark Warren, who's a Christian counselor who's become more famous in recent days as the leader of eHarmony.com, points out that the parents know the children better really than they know themselves. And if so, if, if both sets of parents feel like this is not a good match, you would be wise to at least pay some attention uh, to their observation. So it's important, first of all, to have that family support. Well, what's the action step here? Well, I think the Bible's real clear in Genesis 2.24. People talk about it in shorthand terms, and that marriage involves two things. Leave. You leave your family of origin and cleave. You cleave to your partner. And that's the first thing. to remember that your marriage is, is now your first family. And that's where your priorities and efforts uh, are to be made. And the families are to respect and encourage that. So the first failure really wasn't theirs. It was thrust upon them. But the second failure we can readily see in their relationship. The second failure was, there was a failure to me, obviously, to let go of the past. Now how do I know this? Because the author of Samuel, led by the Holy Spirit, no longer calls Michael David's wife. What does he call Michael? Saul's daughter. The author is giving us very clear hints that Michael's identity is a bit mixed. She's pretty much still stuck in the past in her relationship as daughter of the king. And it could be she's quite disturbed that not only is her father no longer king, but her brother never ascended to the throne and instead David got it. It could be that there are real issues in the past that are creeping up in this present moment. And I think that's instructive for us in all our relationships, that often the current issue or the problem in the present is really a problem from the past. Could be a past relationship, could be a previous relationship, or could be an earlier point in our relationship, in, in the current relationship. But often what's, what's rearing its head in the present is something that's come from the past. Issues, when we don't deal with them, become like the proverbial beach ball, and, and they want to come up, and, and they're, they're hard to hold down. I'm reminded of the story that the, uh, my favorite preacher, Fred Craddock, tells. He went and had dinner with a couple after church one Sunday when he was a guest preacher. And it was a second marriage for both uh, the husband and the wife. And in the middle of dinner, the wife just picked up the fork and said, you know, I really don't like these forks. 
And the husband got up, picked up the fork, uttered an expletive, threw it down, rushed out of the dining room, went upstairs and slammed the door. Well, there he is at the dinner table and Fred is silent for a moment and finally he says, uh, that's an unusual response to a fork. And the woman bursts out in tears. She said, that's my fault. I know better. In his first marriage, the only thing he brought from it was the silverware. That's all he got. There were past things impinging on the present. Sometimes those past things are from a previous relationship. Sometimes they're from a current relationship. But the lesson and the corrective action is we've got to work through those issues. We've got to work through the issues. You've got to go through the darkness of the tunnel to get to the light at the end. And I love what author Susan Scott says. She says, oftentimes we have reasons for not discussing what we know we ought to discuss. It's like, well, things are going pretty well right now. I don't want to, uh, you know, upset the equilibrium. Or, well, I just think he'll explode if I bring that up. Or, or she's not going to listen to me. We have all sorts of reasons. And Scott says this. She, she says, you can have your reasons or you can have results. But if you want the results, if you want the progress in your relationship, you're going to have to risk talking about the issues and working through the important issues. Or they will come back up. And they will get you just as they got Michael and they got David. And this brings us to the third failure. And the third failure I see here is a failure to forgive. Whatever the issues were, whatever is going on, whether Michael resents David because her father's not the king or because she got hauled back from her second husband after years of separation from her first and thrown back to her first, uh, who knows what all is going on or she resents David's popularity. Who knows? We don't know. But we do know this, that on both sides there is no indication that they're willing to forgive. You see how they get locked in immediately in this confrontation and she delivers an attack on him and said, boy, that was really impressive. You were dancing around half naked in front of everybody, in front of the servant girls and everything. And he locks in on on the response in his own attack and says, well, if you think that's something, just wait. And there's no conversation There's no dialogue. No one's taking the first step toward making anything better. They're digging in. And we do one of two things. We dig in or we retreat when we don't forgive. And it becomes very costly to relationship. Because by my recollection and observation, every married couple on this planet is imperfect. It's made up of a union of two imperfect people. And because they are imperfect, they will from time to time disappoint or hurt one another. And so the only way you're going to go forward in your relationship is with the ability to forgive for a person failing you at some point in some way. It's only through forgiveness that we go forward. And Jesus knew this. Jesus was once asked about relationships, how many times should I forgive? Seven times. And the person asking the question thought they'd go the head of the class because the rabbis taught that three was sufficient. And he said, no, 70 times seven Forgiveness is something you do over and over and over again because forgiveness has more to do with the state of your soul and your well-being than it even does with the other person. Think about it for a moment. How far have grudges gotten you in life? How, How happy have grudges made you? How much progress have you made in relationships where, where you're carrying a grudge? How much measurable improvement in the relationship has happened because of the grudge that you hold? Probably not much. It's just not a good way to go through life, and Jesus knew it. So forgiveness has to be 
practiced. So to me, the corrective action here is we need to watch out for unforgiving behaviors. You know, we just need to take our own relational pulse. Let me give you four signs that I can see. Four ways you know you're not being very forgiving. One, if you use threats. Two, if you blame. Three, if you use sarcasm. Four, if you use the silent treatment. There are more, but if you see any of those in your relationship, you can be pretty well assured that you have not gotten far in forgiveness. And like David and Michael, there's trouble for you around the corner. The fourth failure that I see for David and Michael is this, was a failure to totally commit to the relationship. It's obvious that from Michael's um, uh, situation, she still holds on to her family of origin in as much as she holds on to her new family. It's obvious from David's comment about the slave girls that he's opening up this relationship to uh, other people, that he's going to spend some of his energy elsewhere. And anytime you have people who are not willing to totally commit to each other, you have got a situation and a relationship that's heading for trouble. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why people don't totally commit. They just, you know, that well, we've tried and, and I, you know, I've put myself into it and, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere or I don't think I'm getting anything out of this. That often happens. But I think you need to know this, that they did a study about a decade ago very famous sociologist, Daniel uh, Yankovich. And he, he noticed this, that the marriages that were less satisfying to people were uh, in a direct uh, correlation to uh, how the couples and the individuals in the couple, how set they were on their own self-fulfillment. In other words, the higher value you place on you being fulfilled, on your needs being met, on you being happy, the lower the chance that you were going to have a satisfying marriage. When you put yourself in front of the other and in front of the relationship, you are not going to have good results. Biblically, we could have guessed this anyway. Jesus once taught that I have not come to be served, but to serve. When we put our needs and our hopes on the front of the, 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 the burner, then what we're going to find is when they're not being met, our commitment's going to wane. And, and trouble is going to follow very quickly. And sometimes we don't commit because it just looks like opportunities are better elsewhere. Sort of the grass is greener uh, syndrome. Well, the, the slave girls, they'll appreciate me. They'll like this dance better than you do. Uh, but the truth of the matter, and we live in South Texas, we get this. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it. And if you're not totally committed in this relationship, you're not watering it. You're not watering it. How can you expect that it will be green? A, a total commitment is called for, and less than that, there, there will be trouble. So I would su- suggest that the corrective action here is that you do whatever it takes. In your relationship, you do whatever it takes. If it takes counseling, call the church. We have counselors here. We also can recommend counselors outside the church. Uh, if it takes changing your job, changing your schedule, whatever it takes, you do. You, you totally commit. Finally, this is something that you can see in David and Michael, and that is they have a failure to share a common faith. They have a failure to share in a common faith. David makes mistakes. There's no question about that. But one thing he usually gets right is that he's a man after God's own heart. 
One wonders if you can say the same thing about Michael. Uh, if we go back to the story of when uh, Saul wants to sneak up at my, uh, one night and get David, uh, she makes a dummy. And if you know what the story, you know what she uses for a dummy is she uses a household idol. You know, not an American idol, it's something smaller. A household idol, the head of a god, a false god. And she sticks the false god on the pillow and puts hair on it. But it tells us what's hanging around in her house. Other gods. And this failure to share the faith will help to unravel and undo them in the end. Years ago, I would have stood up and told you that if both of you are Christians and you share your faith, that your marriage has a much better chance of going the distance than two people who don't. But the statistics actually on that, unfortunately, are showing that the Christian divorce rate is pretty much as high as as the outside world. That's disappointing, so here's what I'll guarantee you. If both of you share the same faith, you will go much deeper in your relationship. There is an intimacy that is deeper than physical intimacy, and it is at the spiritual level. You will be able to connect at the very deepest level of your being, which is your heart. And if you don't share that, then there's a large part of who you are that's shut off to the other person. Let me make a couple observations. One is... If you're in a relationship where the other person doesn't share your spiritual uh, journey, doesn't share your faith, and you're going it seemingly alone, keep going. Keep loving that person and keep worshiping God. Just keep on the path. It's not a hard path, but it's the right path. Now, but the second thing is this. If you're not married, you're thinking about it, or maybe you're one day date and you get married, please hear this. If you do not share the faith with one another, if you don't have the same faith, then do not walk, run to the nearest exit. Because this is not a problem that's going to get fixed after you get married. I cannot tell you how many times that I've seen that. And then years later, they come back to me when it's time for the baby to be baptized or or whatever. And they're in an impasse. If you don't settle it in the courtship phase, it's not going to get settled. And if you don't share faith, then there is a large part of your life. If you claim that God is the center of your life, which I'm assuming you're claiming by being here this morning or at least exploring that possibility, then the center of your life is closed off to the person who's supposed to be closest to you on this planet. How can that work? It can't. It can't. It's a hard thing to say, but get it straight now because it's not going to straighten out by itself later. The action step that I would take is just do what you do, what you're already doing. Keep worshiping, keep praying, keep loving God. Make the, keep practicing your faith, and hopefully you'll find someone who practices with you. And if not, keep practicing it. Maybe one day they will. But what happens that I note is this. David comes after the ark episode home to bless his family. And that teaches me that one of the ways God wants to bless me is through my marriage. One of the ways God wants to encourage me, instruct me, guide me, support me, love me, is through marriage. And when I get closed off in my marriage, I'm getting closed off to what part of what God wants to do. But even worse than that is when I get closed off in my marriage, I get opened up to some things that are hurtful. We'll talk about this next week, but David got closed off to Michael. And unfortunately, 
God opened to Bathsheba.